he was just so unique in so many ways. And I just know that he, he loved to engage people. Ivan just relished making connection. Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. A few episodes ago, we enjoyed a conversation with Ron Irwin, who shared stories of the B&I Circus Store in Lakewood, Washington, from its birth after World War II through its expansion in the 1950s and 60s that was spurred mostly by the outsized personality of founder Earl Irwin. And it was the pet store of the B&I with an ever-changing menagerie that included chimpanzees, jaguars, lions, seals, elephants, squirrels, and exotic fish that attracted the shoppers and their children. And the king of the shopping mall jungle was a western lowland gorilla named Ivan. Our guest today grew up with Ivan, and it was his parents who operated the pet store. So today we'll explore what it's like to grow up with a gorilla, and what happens when a jungle animal like Ivan is raised as a human being. We'll explore the ways in which Ivan's legacy continues to inspire others. And stick around. In today's episode, we'll hear from Seattle school children who will bring questions about Ivan. And joining us for some final comments will be Jody Kerrigan of Zoo Atlanta, Ivan's companion and caretaker for the last decade of his life. And finally, we'll learn how you can contribute to the preservation of species habitat like that of the Western Lowland Gorilla through an organization founded by Earl Irwin's grandson, who's also here with us today. Let's drive around. So let's welcome our guests, Larry Johnson and Earl Borgert. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. So, Larry, the B&I was called a circus store, and it featured animals as a prime attraction. And you grew up in the B&I pet store, so you were around animals all the time. What did these experiences teach you about why people, and especially kids, benefit from being close to animals? Well, I think every child in their own way attaches to a a dog or a cat, or in some cases, a goldfish or a a bird. Uh, Kids have a natural desire to be a companion to to something of another species. So the uniqueness of of a gorilla, (laughs) again, a a once-in-a-lifetime experience, I think kids really have this wholesome enjoyment and love of bonding of things that are under their care. It gives them a chance to nurture, to understand, and, and to really communicate and connect on a very special level. Nothing better than a, than a dog running up to you when you get home from school and its tail's wagging, it's jumping all over the place. You know, that's pure excitement. That is unadulterated excitement and love. And I think kids really appreciate that. So no better spokesperson for that than you because of your parents. So can you tell us a little bit about your origin? Certainly. Well, my dad was a landscaper by trade and, and worked for a construction company. It was a heavy construction company. Um, Mom went to work uh, at the B&I at the pet shop for a gentleman by the name of Ted Griffin. And Ted Griffin, for some will remember the name, is the gentleman who captured the first killer whale. And that was Namu, the killer whale. News of this event quickly reached the ears of Ted Griffin, young director of the Seattle Marine Aquarium. As worldwide headlines echoed the story, Griffin sped to the scene and arranged to transport the whale to Seattle. Cameras were there to record this historic meeting, a 12,000-pound killer whale and a 150-pound man. 
a meeting that was to have profound impact, not only on the scientific world, but one which would have eventual meaning for every one of us. And Ted owned the pet shop at the time. My folks ended up purchasing the pet shop from him, and he went on to open the Seattle Marine Aquarium. So we kind of fell into it a bit accidentally because Ted had bigger plans, and, and, and Mom loved animals, and there was this opportunity to, to buy this business. So my folks ended up purchasing the pet shop and began the pet shop with $14.32 in their till. And that, that was their stake in, in becoming pet shop owners. Over the years, things, of course, got bigger and better. And over the course of, of our tenure there, we had two leopard cubs. We had seven lion cubs, two Himalayan sun bears, uh, countless harbor seals, sea lions, fur seals, of course, the elephant, the taper, and then we had a small menagerie of unique smaller monkeys, uh, macaques, and uh, we had one cage at one time full of gibbon apes, and we became one of the largest pet shops on the West Coast. As the promotions at the BNI got bigger and bigger, and Earl's idea of expanding the circus theme in the store uh, began to get more grandiose. Uh, my parents had the privilege of sharing in that growth, which eventually led to us getting a zoo license because how that came about was um, it wasn't uncommon for us to get door knocks at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and people were coming in from Point Defiance or other other points on the Puget Sound, and, and they'd say, well, gee, we found this little harbor seal that was abandoned by mom. Well, what mom was doing was out hunting and and these folks just didn't give mom a chance to return, so they knew that we would take animals in. So it wasn't uncommon for me to wake up in the morning and find a, a baby harbor seal in the bathtub. Upon entering our new jungle land and pet shop, you will cross a Chinese bridge over a 50-foot pond. Upon entering the pet shop, you will find many new and unusual animal oddities and attractions. Can you talk a little bit more about the collaboration between your parents and Earl Irwin? I mean, he was always probably gunning for more. And Yeah, Earl had an imagination as big as the Grand Canyon. There, there was no promotion that didn't make some logic to him. And I was a young man. I was in my early, early, early teens when Ivan arrived. So I met Earl when I was probably 10, maybe 11 years old. And when he would come down and talk to mom and dad about the next promotion, my jaw normally hit the floor. It was like, I'm 10 years old and you want us to do what? <laughs> and so it, it never surprised us when Earl came up with a new promotion. Anything memorable among those? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is we had just moved the pet shop. Uh, so in the middle of the pet shop now was a large 48,000-gallon pool. And Earl came to my dad one day and said, you know, it's Washington's birthday. We need to do something really unique. So dad said, well, you know, I've got this friend that owns a trout farm. How about if we put all the seals over in this small pond and we put live trout in this pool and we'll charge folks 22 cents a piece to catch live trout? 
we sold a ton of trout. Um, and what we did was we probably put together 60 or 80 bamboo sticks and nothing more than a five or six foot long stick tied a little fishing line to one end, a hook to the other, and we let people catch trout for 22 cents. So that's just one of the things that I remember that, that Earl and Dad would, would hatch these plans and somehow they always were always successful. Uh, Dad later went on to sell Christmas trees for 88 cents. I mean, come on, a Christmas tree for 88 cents, and they sold hundreds of them. So it was always some sort of bizarre promotion that just drew people in. So, Larry, can you share a story about a particularly strong bond that evolved between a human and an animal at the pet store? Sure. Uh, we had a young man working for us by the name of Uva Warner, was a student at the University of Washington, and he would come down in the summer months and, and work for us. And he had a particularly unique connection with one of our longest tenured lions at the BNI by the name of Honey. And she picked her name up because that was her, her disposition. She was just this lovely, lovely, loving creature, literally a big house cat. And she connected with Uva in a very special, very, very special way. She is the only lion we ever let leave other than going to a zoo. So she was allowed to live in a residential home out in the Parkland area. So she bonded with humans just much the way Ivan did. She didn't know anything different. So to be in the home with them was where I'm supposed to be. Wow. But during one of the big storms we had, she got a bit frightened, and uh, they had a compound outside of their home, and just happened to be this evening, nobody was home, so they had her in the compound outside, and she, she got out and got into a tree looking, looking for the family, basically. She needed to clear the fence, so she had a, a line of sight, and she fell out of the tree and, and hung herself. Mm. And so that was the, the only animal we ever let go, and we never did that again. So let's talk about Ivan and your childhood with Ivan. Well, it all began, uh, Dad and I were standing in the front of the pet shop in one of the main aisles, and we heard somebody jingling coins walking up the aisle, and we knew it was Earl. And I, I so remember the conversation so clearly. Earl said, Reuben, we have an opportunity. Dad goes, okay, what might that opportunity be? <clears throat> Earl says, well, we've had chimpanzees, we've had seals, sea lions, we've had lions, and we've had blah, blah, blah. We've never had a gorilla. And Dad was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> we, we, we never have. And Earl said, can you fix that? Dad says, well, I'll make some phone calls. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll make some phone calls. And three days later, Morgan calls back and says, yep, we found a pair, a male and a female, and it's going to be 5000 for the female, 3500 for the male. What do you think? This is in the 1960, late 62, early 63. So that was a pretty substantial amount of money back then. So Dad went down, saw Earl, and Earl said, yep, let's do it. 
And that's literally, it was a spur of the moment conversation in the aisle in front of the pet shop. Earl said, let's, let's have a gorilla. And my dad was foolish enough to say, okay. <laughs> that's how it came about, uh-huh. really. It was uh-huh. just almost an instantaneous conversation. Didn't, didn't last more than three minutes. At the time, I was a 13-year-old kid trying to find his way in the world, uh, was going through all of these body mutations and all this mental gyrations and trying to figure out who the heck I was, how to cure acne, and why was my hair sticking up in the back. So thrown into that mix is, okay, here's a new responsibility for you. You got school, you got sports, and you got a pet gorilla. Well, I can't have a pet gorilla. He's got to be part of our family which he obviously became a very important part and a very demanding part. But it was an eye-opening experience that I certainly didn't appreciate at the time because 13 to 16 is a pretty formidable time for a kid to develop friendships and attitudes and opinions. And we basically worked and came home. Because when you own a pet shop, you don't get to take days off. Every animal needs to be cared for regardless. So Christmas morning, Easter morning, the the four days a year we were closed, we were in there for four hours taking care of everything. And then what about school for you? Uh, School was school. Uh, Ivan was very relaxed with the routine because he knew he was going to go to the B&I with mom and, and dad, and he would be in constant visual contact with them. So it was okay. That was fine. Come evening time, they'd get home 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, maybe 9.30. We'd have a quick dinner, and Ivan knew that it was time to eat, romp for a half an hour, and go to sleep. So his routine was pretty set. For me, school was just school. Um, a bit unique because uh, I, I had a, a gorilla in, in my home, and uh, everybody knew that, that we were associated with the BNI and certainly the pet shop, but just having those three years of your life dedicated to a gorilla uh, made for a very, very unique growing up period of time for me. What is the temperament of a gorilla? Ivan um, never saw him angry. He He would get excited and there were a couple of routines where fight or flight kicked in but there was never any anger he just we we didn't provoke him number one because he was just too darn strong and and who needs that but uh because he was a family member he just lived as my little brother as our little little sibling so his temperament was very, very inquisitive. Oh, my word. He needed to know how everything worked. Not that he was going to use that wisdom. He just needed to know, how does this thing move? Or why is there fabric on this couch? Or why does this chair turn like this? I wonder if it can go like this. So he was always investigating, looking at what his world, uh, how everything in his world worked, if you will. So his temperament was always fun-loving, very inquisitive, obviously very energetic, but he never was drawn to anger. 
You mentioned a fight or flight response. Yes. There were only a couple of occasions. Uh, one of those was the first time Ivan met Toro, the Great Dane. Uh, Mom had a, a, a fawn-colored Great Dane by the name of Toro. He weighed about 130 pounds, really a large, large Great Dane specimen. And Mom being the matriarch of the family, uh, there were certain boundaries that even us, the, the two boys, you, you didn't roughhouse with mom if Toro was there. It just, it wasn't okay. Don't roughhouse with mom because I just don't understand this. So he would always protect mom. So one late afternoon, Ivan is circling around mom. And what Ivan would do, he, he would just use your ankles to anchor his center point so the centrifugal force wouldn't, wouldn't spin him off. So he's zipping around mom and he's, He's having a great time, and Mom's giggling, and Toro comes in from the backyard, comes through the kitchen, and looks at Ivan, and it's like, that's not okay. We don't do that to Mom, and he lets out this thunderous, I mean, the loudest bark he's ever reported, and it absolutely scared Ivan. I won't tell you what his bowel function did, but you can imagine. <laughs> he was that frightened. And that was the prominent fight or flight moment for Ivan. Uh, the other time was we're, we're at, a, at, a, uh, at a beach and I sat down in, in the water and Ivan didn't particularly like water. He liked, he liked water, but he didn't like being in water. And so I stood up and kind of trotted up about 15, 20 feet. Come on, buddy, let's go. And he was really upset. It, it just, the smell, um, salt water tasted funny. It wasn't pool water, wasn't bath water. And there was actually an anxious moment for him. And I could see his, his stress level just spiked. So ran out and, and got him. It's like, okay, but it's it's okay. You're you're not, you're not being swept away by a, a tsunami. It's just salt water. Then he had one one incident in in California. Um, Clarence, the cross-eyed lion, was a full-grown adult male lion, and we were on the set of Doctari. And. The the premise of the show was that Ivan was going to be on, on a flatbed truck in a cage and it's bouncing along and it falls off and he falls into the water. So number one, he had to get wet for this particular scene. But in order to get him into the cage, now he's got an elephant, he's got a lion, he's got all these creatures around him. He's kind of going, whoa, this is not like home. Um and you want me to go in that cage? No, not going to happen. So he watched one of the trainers on the set take a large, like a 18, 24-inch screwdriver and beat this poor lion half to death, just whacking him on the head. And it upset him. He knew something because the grunts and the... And the uh, the audible coming from the line, he knew something wasn't right. So the co-star, one of the co-stars, decides that you're going to go in the cage because you're holding up production. So he grabs uh, Ivan and starts to throw him in the cage, and Ivan turns and bites him on the arm and really lays his arm open. And I told him, I said, don't do that. Stop. 
oh, you're a kid, and grabs him and, and tries to throw him in. Plus, he had just met a guy in a gorilla costume <laughs> over, <laughs> over, over in the bush, and he's kind of going, okay, a lion, a guy in a costume wants to be a gorilla, a chimpanzee who doesn't mind. Yeah, this is a great place to be, folks. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> and then some guy he, he does not know tries to throw him in a cage that he doesn't want to go in. So just a bad combination, a really bad stew is cooking at that moment. So he ends up biting this actor, really, really laid his arm open. Um, so it took about 20 minutes to get him to calm down. And I said, come on, let's go. And I just, I went into the cage with him and he came right along. And I said, you're, you're fine. Just, just be cool. I'll be right here. And I, I walked out and he's kind of going, nah, wait a minute. This isn't, no, 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 no. But he was, he, he calmed down enough to, to just shoot the scene. They didn't have to be on the truck, fortunately, because uh, that wasn't going to work for him. But that, those were the three major, major instances of, of fight or flight. So, Doctari, can you tell us a little bit about what that show was and what Ivan's appearance mm-hmm. was composed of? Doctari was a, a program based on uh, a, a doctor and his daughter who were veterinarians who were caring for injured and, and poached animals on African continent. And they had a third young man who was another co-star um, who played a part of, of the program. But they were basically it was a program was just about all of the adventures and misadventures of, of them trying to capture poachers and doing all the right things for animals, if you will. And we happened to be in one episode of that, which is actually the first time he, he ever had uh, exposure to finger paints. And he's sitting at a table outside of this little hut we were, we were staying in. And uh, one of the actors, for I don't know what reason, gave him two or three bottles of finger paints and poured them on a piece of paper. And he's going, this is kind of fun. This is, this is cool. And uh, so the premise was he was a poached baby gorilla who they brought into their compound after he bounced off this truck, fell into the water, blah, blah, blah. So that was, that was the episode. And then they went on to, uh, to kind of give him a, a new home and finger painting and, you know, that, that sort of. And then, the, the, then the, the big gorilla in a costume comes out, okay, son, let's go. <laughs> so happy trails to all. Howdy. <laughs> <laughs> So how did you transport Ivan, and what was it like working with him in Hollywood? We put him in a red Corvair van, and we drove to Southern California. Um, <laughs> yeah, another wonderful event, <laughs> with no air conditioning, by the way. <laughs> Road trip with a with Road a gorilla. Road trip with a gorilla, yeah. Well, how did that go? It went, went well. Um, we uh, we actually stayed on site at uh, the Doctari uh, film lot for the first two nights we were on set, and Mom finally said, "Okay, no shower, this isn't working. We're gonna we're gonna go into town." So went into a Holiday Inn, and uh, that's where Ivan had his first run in with armed guards. Uh, he was standing on the ledge of the window and 
kind of pounding on the glass as a large, large picture window. And uh, his rhythm and his strength increased and increased and increased, and finally the window shattered. And, of course, it was a horrible sound, frightened him to death. He jumps off, hits the bed, rolls over, and, and rolls over to the second bed. And not within 10 to 12 seconds, there's this horrendous pounding on our door. And, I mean, it was somebody fist on the door. So mom opens the door, and these two huge black men walk in with weapons drawn. And what the F's going on here? And, and it's like we are just absolutely taken by surprise at this event. Well, come to find out that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was staying at the facility, and they thought it was a threat to his life. So they came in, and they, we explained what was going on, and they said, oh, we're really sorry. This <laughs> never happened. I said, yeah, it did. <laughs> I was scared half witless. And, uh, but they, they came back, and they said, we're, we are really sorry. And they were just wonderful uh, about it. Then they went, is that a baby gorilla? Can... <laughs> I said, yeah, come on, come on, you know, and we, and it, so, so Ivan was going, okay, hi guys, how you doing? What's that? <laughs> you know, and, and it ended up being quite a, quite a relaxed, I mean, just the, the, the trauma of them virtually trying to knock the door off the hinges to get into the room, doing their job, understood that, but at the moment it was way too fast. We're trying to figure out what are we going to do with a broken window? What are, you know, there was just a lot of, a lot of chaos at the moment. So tell us more about the California road trip with Ivan. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're uh, <clears throat> in a limousine, and it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Traffic is absolutely at a standstill. I mean, we're not going anywhere. So... We roll the window down in the back of this limo, which was uh, the limo that Ivan Torres had gone out to Lancaster, where we were staying, and brought us into town. And um, <laughs> uh, Ivan is literally sitting on the windowsill like this, got his arms crossed, his chin is, and he's just looking, just watching people as they slowly go by. And he hears a motorcycle, and he loved to ride motorcycle with me. So up through the, the, the lanes of traffic come this biker and Ivan instinctively just reaches out and smacks the guy on the top of the helmet, about <laughs> takes his head off. And, <laughs> and all, we, all we hear is a, and this bike's come to a screeching halt. And then you hear the thud of harness boots going, kunk, 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 as this guy's backing the bike up. And he is just cussing a blue streak. I mean, he is going off. Why you blankety, 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 blank the whole way back, probably 15, 18 feet. And he gets back to the car and he turns to look in here and he starts screaming. And Ivan, of course, now, uh-uh, wrong move, dude. Fortunately, we had him controlled. So, so he couldn't get to this biker because he was going to, he was going to get after him because <laughs> mom is sitting next to me mm. and it's a threat to mom. So after the guy realizes what's going on, he looks and he says, what just happened? I said, I'm 
sorry, man, but he and I ride motorcycles. He heard your bike. He, you know, it was just instinctive. We don't mean anything, but I hope, you know, he says, wow, man, that's really cool. He says, and he, for five minutes, he's slowly inching his bike along, talking to us, trying to convince us to go to their clubhouse the Hells Angels Clubhouse, mind you, so he can introduce Ivan to the rest of the, the pack that we, we declined <laughs> for, for obvious reasons. So you rode a motorcycle as a child with Ivan. Yes. And I think I saw a picture of you on a speedboat together. Maybe that was a promotional thing. Promotion, yeah, yeah. But anything else you can share that was, about? That was the... actually the B&I hydroplane. Oh, okay. Yeah, we were in the cockpit of the hydroplane. While it was moving or just? No, promo. No, okay. no. Promo. they wouldn't let me. Bring a... <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't reach the pedals. <laughs> so tell us about the other fun stuff that you guys did as kids. Well, just, you know, motorcycle riding, it was quite, quite common. He'd hop on the back of the bike. And I would wear a helmet because I, I had to. And he would stand up on the back of the seat, put his arms over my shoulders. But if he saw something that he really liked, he would, he would take his right arm and he'd go in the top of my helmet about breaking my head off because it was something he wanted to, to see or investigate. Something shiny. Uh, something, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, look. <laughs> and, and so quite often we would be buzzing around the neighborhood and he'd see something he wanted to investigate and we'd start smacking my helmet. So we... we did that as often as we could. It wasn't encouraged. Um, not everybody enjoyed the fact that Ivan and I were out riding motorcycles, and it was probably not the safest thing to do. But we we snuck away from time to time. There wasn't much free time was the problem because we worked so much, uh, you know, 12, 14-hour days, six days a week, and a good 10-hour shift on Sundays. And when, when you've got animals, you got to take care of them right. and... Folks were just responsible animal owners, so we, we just weren't away from the store a lot. But every chance we got, we'd sneak out. How did the neighbors feel about your having a grill in the house? Well, um, the one evening I was allowed to leave, I was going to the Puyallup Fair. It was school day. So my folks gave me a little money, and I was going to go meet a meet a friend and go with him. So they took this big 55-gallon show aquarium in, in a nice walnut cabinet, scooted it over in front of the door so Ivan couldn't follow me out. Well, it wasn't working for him. He wanted to find out where I was. So he grabs this aquarium, pulls it over, smashes it. Uh, Mom is scooting around trying to pick up fish flopping on, on the hardwood floors. Dad's running to get buckets and the such. Ivan scoots the aquarium out of the way, opens the door, and down the street he goes. First open door he sees, he runs in going, ooh, 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 calling, where you at, where you at? Well, Mrs. French happened to be home alone, and she was French didn't speak real real clear English, although she could cuss really well in English, we found out. Because <laughs> he ran into her house uh, hooping, looking for me. And then by the time Dad got there, she's just petrified. Uh, you can only imagine. So it was a novelty because within about two months of arriving, he had torn the, the drapes off. So 
it wasn't uncommon for neighbors to be walking by and here's Ivan looking, hi, how you doing? <laughs> so he was, he was very well received um, until Mrs. French and that incident didn't work well for her. <laughs> So Larry, as you know, my son's class at the Seattle Jewish Community School near Green Lake recently read The One and Only Ivan together. And you and Earl are gracious enough to visit classrooms to share your story of Ivan. And you did so this morning at my son's school. Let's tune into the question and answer period with these fourth graders. How old was he when you got him? We think Ivan was between four and six months old. We're not really sure, though. How old was Ivan when he started painting? Ivan started painting on the set of Doctari, so he was probably about 22 to 24 months old. Is it true that they actually sold Ivan's paintings? Yes. One of Ivan's uh, framed pieces of artwork has sold for as much as $5,000. Did Ivan ever injure you? No, we played really, really hard. Uh, there were some bumps and bruises, never an injury. How did the book come about, and how did you approach him? Uh, the book came about, uh, uh, the author decided to write the book, uh, investigated through various printed material uh, that was available to her, uh, did not consult with us, did not talk to anybody that had any relationship or, or direct contact with Ivan, but she just kind of created a story using her imagination and what limited information she was able to gather through printed publications. Were there any complaints from your neighbors of how much racket Ivan did? Ivan didn't create a lot of noise or racket. Everything that he did was inside the house with the rare moments when he'd be in the yard with us, but he wasn't a loud creature. He didn't make uh, uh, any, any hoots or hollers with the one exception when he went looking for me. Was it close to um, change Ivan's diapers? No, Ivan, Ivan was my little brother, so it was one of the, the necessary things that you do when, when you have a, someone you love and you take care of. It was okay. How was it decided that Ivan slept with you? That was Ivan's choice. He was given uh, free reign as to what bed he wanted to sleep in, and he chose me very early on. And uh, that's where he wanted to spend his evenings. Well, let's talk about the transition of Ivan from your home into the store. When did that happen in terms of Ivan's life and why? Ivan weighed about 65 pounds and he had just gotten so large and so powerful um, Plus, we'd had him for over three years, and it was just time, time for us to move on. Um, it was uh, three years of my life that I didn't have an outside life. Uh, I was a, a young kid, 13 to 16 years old, and every evening I was expected to be home because Ivan expected me to be there. So I didn't have a social life beyond just school hours and, and sports. Uh, looking back, it was... I know I didn't appreciate it at the time, certainly. Uh, looking now, it, it, in today's view, it was an extraordinary once-in-a-lifetime 
experience. But we made the decision, and Earl contacted a company out of Portland, Oregon, called Columbia Trailer. And they designed this wonderful, really a a beautiful uh, environment for Ivan. Uh, Had a a complete air conditioning, heating, cooling, had its own environmental containment. It had a kitchen, it had a stove, uh, an oven, a sink, uh, also had a television. So it was a complete standalone unit. It was a portable semi-trailer, so we could take him out to county fairs and as such. Uh, So when when the decision was finally made to permanently house him in the trailer, um, we knew it wasn't going to be an easy transition. So for about the first, I'm going to say about seven, maybe eight weeks, uh, it took us to really transition him. Um, First week, I slept on a cot right against the bars, and that way he could reach through and he could touch either me or the or the cot. And over the, the course of the next about five or six weeks, I would slowly move the cot uh, a couple of inches away from the previous night. Um, finally was able to get my cot outside of the kitchenette area, but left the big sliding steel door open so he could see me, and then slowly started moving down the ramp. And after about seven weeks, it was apparent that he was going to be okay. His first night alone was a bit tough because I sat out of his view. He couldn't see me. I could see him because the lights were on in his trailer, but I had the pet shop dark. Uh, So I sat uh, the first night. I wasn't on the cot. I had fully closed the door, and I just sat on a chair for about three hours watching him. And he sat for about the first 30 minutes and just looking at the door going, okay, are you still there? Are, Are you around or what's going on? And then he finally kind of went, okay. I'm just going to grab my blanket, and uh, he went over to his straw bed and laid down and went to sleep. So I knew it was okay. I knew the transition was complete, and he was going to be fine. So who cared for Ivan after you moved on? Well, he stayed at the pet shop for, what, three years until the permanent cage was built. Um, so again, he was in constant contact during star hours with, he could see us uh-huh. through his, his uh, glass and we were the ones prepping his food. So there was constant connection through his feeding door. So about the first three years, we were his keepers. And then when he moved out of the trailer over to the new concrete compound, uh, that's when they brought full-time keepers in. And how did this transition impact you personally? I was with him till I was 18. Um, then I joined the Marine Corps and uh, served two years. Uh, got home from Vietnam, uh, ran the pet shop for another year and a half before we sold it. And I had begun to distance myself from that connection just because other things, primarily females, <laughs> were taking up more and more of my time. <laughs> So it was part of my past, and I, I, as much as I enjoyed him, I let it be the past. So this question is really for Earl. In our prior episode, we learned about how Earl Irwin, your grandfather, founded the BNI and how you visited the store as a child. What are your childhood memories of Ivan? 
So when I was a kid, he was always there. He was the guy to interact with when I went to work with my grandma. And um, to be one of those kids that he entertained all the time. And to just kind of befriend him in a way and have him befriend you by just kind of sitting there looking at looking at him through the glass was, you know, a very interesting experience. So as we talked about in the prior episode about the BNI, the 1990s were marked by a shift. There were protests about Ivan. What are your memories of this period? You know, when, when everything was kind of going on with Ivan back in the 90s, you know, that wasn't a really fun part for anybody in our family, you know, especially my uncle. And and there were moments where I, I really wanted to kind of just distance myself, you know, from that because there was, it was, it had its own degree of chaos. You know, but during these moments, I've, I've kind of learned a, an appreciation for his story in a lot of different ways where um, when he had passed away in 2012... Uh, my sister and I had gone to Zoo Atlanta for his memorial, and they put together an amazing memorial. They did like a private version for um, people that worked at the zoo and my sister and I, and then we there was a, a public memorial as well. It, it was very touching. Like they would give him a new stuffed animal like every couple of months, and so his favorite stuffed animal at the time was this owl, and. Um, they put the owl on his favorite little hillside that he liked to be in and um, right next to this sign that said animal off exhibit. And that was a pretty powerful kind of statement. And, but um, there were hundreds of people there to say goodbye to him. And I was curious and I, I, I started asking people um, about their connection to him. And, and out of the handful of people that I talked to, maybe 10 or 12, four of them, actually came from here, you know, to Atlanta just to go to his memorial and say goodbye to him because he was a person that had meant that much to them when they were kids. And there was, the zoo had put up this whole board of all of these letters from all of these kids that had come to visit Ivan over all these years at Zoo Atlanta saying goodbye because, um, even at Zoo Atlanta, he was the only gorilla that would come up and engage with people. All of the other gorillas were like, I don't know, they didn't do that. But he, because of his upbringing, and especially with the Johnston family and at the BNI, that was his thing. And so he would go up and he would go to the glass and he would look at people and they'd look at him. And once again, people became fascinated with him just as they had done in Tacoma. And um, that's when I I started thinking a little bit more about, I thought, you know, it's just like, oh, it's like, okay, well, this this story belongs to my family, you know? And um, and then I started kind of thinking a little bit more and it's like, no, I mean, there's like, there's thousands of people that that share in this, this, this story. And it made me curious to where, why Ivan? You know, like why his story? There's no animal in our history that's ever been able to have such an impact as his story has had on our culture. And I find that fascinating. I mean, I, I find that absolutely intriguing as to how his story impacts people in such a way 
on all different levels. Um, I'm not here to like defend or advocate anything that my grandfather had done. I'm just here to show appreciation for what I've learned from this story. But once again, I'm completely fascinated by the fact that his story continues to shape and impact lives in a huge way. And these kids are going to grow up. And maybe one day they will change the world. And they will change how endangered species are actually treated in their native homelands. And um, I hope that somebody finds an answer to the perils that they face that are caused by us. So talk a little bit about your visit to Ivan at Zoo Atlanta. Well, it had been about 15 years since he had left, and I knew he didn't have that much longer to live. And so I decided to kind of reach out and develop a dialogue with the new handlers at Zoo Atlanta. And so I was able to do that, and um, they had then extended an invite for me to go and visit. And it was a really, really cold day in Atlanta that year. It was in February, and so all of the gorillas had to be inside due to the weather. But uh, my host was Jody Kerrigan, and she regularly talks about Ivan. Um, she's kind of like the zoo ambassador as far as his story goes because she was his uh, favorite at the zoo. And during our, our walk to his area, she had shared her own Ivan stories about how she was originally a blonde and she had read that um, Ivan really liked blonde females and she took note of that because he would show her. <laughs> and so she actually decided uh, she had to dye her hair brown, you know, to kind of help temper him. <laughs> well, Earl, I, I actually had a chance to catch up with Jody at Zoo Atlanta to ask her some questions myself. And here's what she had to say. You know, every time I talk about Ivan, it's really difficult to explain to people my relationship with the gorilla. Um, it's so hard to put into words. You really had to kind of live with us and among us to see what happened. Um, even the keepers, the other caretakers were like amazed at my relationship with Ivan and how far it came. But in general, I think he was pretty shy, but he was very intrigued by me again when we first met. Um but we kept building on our relationship and that bond. And, you know, gorillas have over 20 distinct vocalizations that they use to communicate with. And every time I would come in in the morning, I would say, good morning. And I would specifically say, good morning, Ivan. And this was at the very top of the building. And Ivan lived in the downstairs part. And I could literally hear Ivan's happy rumbles all throughout the building when I said good morning to him. And that's one of those things that it just kind of sticks with you, um, those relationships that you build. Um, and so Ivan, when I first got pregnant, we wanted to know what we were having and um, we knew it was a boy. Well, I think Ivan knew I was pregnant before I did because Ivan, who spent all his time with me, didn't want to spend any time with me. And he turned his back to me. He was actually a little aggressive towards me in the beginning. And I was like, I felt so defeated. I'm like, what's going on? Why? What did I do? And then it came to be my third trimester and he totally flipped his behavior. And, you know, he he was fine. 
And then the second time I got pregnant um, was actually the last year of his life. And he was fine with me. He was perfectly fine. And we didn't want to know what we were having. But I kept telling everybody, I said, listen, I really think I'm having a girl because of the way Ivan is with me. And because the first time I had a boy and the second time. And sure enough, Ivan um, died in August and my daughter was born October 22nd. And it was a girl. And of course, everybody, as soon as I said I had a girl, was like, Ivan was right. <laughs> and again, that that relationship that I had with Ivan, um, he really meant so much to me. And he, the friendship meant a lot. He'll always hold a special place in my heart, um, so much that my daughter actually bears his name. Um, so his he had the Ivan Lee Johnson. And my daughter's name is Alex Lee Kerrigan. Um, so they share the same middle name. And so for me to name my child a little bit after Ivan the Gorilla tells you a little bit about my 10-year relationship with this amazing individual. Then you started the Ivan Foundation. What is that? Well, we want to share what he has meant to us and how... Their best place for these creatures is their native homeland. And the only way to achieve that is to support organizations that are interested in keeping those homelands safe. We're super tiny in the scope of what nonprofits are. And so do I advocate for everybody to contribute to us? No. I mean, contribute to any organization, you know, that has an interest in in keeping the habitats of these endangered species intact and safe. Um, There's nothing wrong with zoos, but zoos have become these custodians of a genome, so to speak, because they're safeguarding what could happen if we really don't respect their native homelands and they really do go extinct. And so the zoos are kind of like a backup in case that, uh, that event actually does happen. And... On the course we are, it just may. So Larry, you and I were talking a little bit about zoos and kind of the changing. Mm -hmm. um, So it's really great to get your perspective because your life has spanned a completely different shift in mores around the relationship between animals and people, and zoos are part of that conversation. Absolutely. An important part, and as Earl mentioned, at the rate we're going, the habitat destruction isn't going to stop. There's just too much greed and too much demand for space and for building materials. And there's not much consideration given to the species that inhabit those areas. And, And unless we wake the world up to it, it's just going to continue. And we know that Steve Jobs introduced Apple computers to kids in grade schools. And look what happened to his corporation. So part of our motivation is let's get these kids while they're young and let them be educated about the reality of our world. Let them make the changes. We can't. Earl and I, we can't stop what's going on. But the next generation can. Mm-hmm. So biggest part of our focus is educating kids, share with them the cool stuff. Ivan was a cool guy. He was just so 
cool. His entire life was cool. And that's to be celebrated, but he's the unique individual in that species. And it's important for us to acknowledge what's going on. And the next generation, as I mentioned, they're the ones who are going to make the difference. They're going to make it happen. So we asked people to bring an item today, and what did you guys each bring? Well, I brought his original cast that uh, he, he broke his foot leaping from uh, the mantle of our fireplace uh, down to the, uh, what was the remnants of a, uh, of a couch that we once had real upholstery and <laughs> foam on it, but the arm broke and he ended up breaking his foot. And so that's the cast that he wore for eight weeks on his foot. I brought a maquette of his statue that Doug Granham gave to me after the project was all said and done. And the statue is off a real pose taken. It was a real image that was taken by Dean Kepfler, um, who is a Tacoma News Tribune photographer. And he went to Zoo Atlanta and captured this wonderful photo of Ivan on his first day being released in his new habitat and holding this flower. And uh, the first time I ever saw that photo was when I went over to my grandma's house and it, it, it struck a chord so deep. And, and when we had an opportunity to do a statue, it's like, well, what do you do a statue of gorilla of? I've seen so many gorilla statues and they're kind of like sitting there. And, um, but this actually means so much because it was actually something that was, a, that was a part of his life. So, Earl, why do you think Ivan, a western lowland gorilla from Africa, has achieved the status of a Pacific Northwest icon, perhaps better known than our mythical Sasquatch? You know, to tell you the truth, I'm completely blown away by how his story has taken on so many different forms and how people have changed his story in so many different ways. As as far as Catherine Applegate goes, she wrote, you know, a wonderful story and, you know, it ended up being required reading in a lot of different schools, and it ended up being so popular that it attracted Disney, of all people. And Disney ended up changing her story just as much as she changed the original story with us. Um, their narrative wasn't... It came close, but it changed a lot. And I remember watching that movie for the very first time over at my uncle's house with Ron and his son, Brian, and and the three of us that had been part of this story. And and at the very beginning, they're introducing this cast of characters of all these animals. Then they come out with Henrietta, the chicken that played baseball. And we just started howling because... We're like, how did they know we had a chicken that played baseball? <laughs> you know, I'm like, hey, you know, and they dug deep, you know? I mean, they, they really dug deep because we really did have a chicken that played baseball. There was a chicken that played tic-tac-toe. The bunny that drove the fire truck, nobody really knows where that came from. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, but I had heard from, Larry and I were interviewed by Evening Magazine one time by St. Brian, and... Before that interview, I was talking with St. Brian. He just got done interviewing Brian Cranston. And he, per that interview, Brian Cranston had told him that he actually read the real story of Ivan, and he didn't like how his, his character was being portrayed. So he encouraged Disney 
to rewrite how his character was portrayed in this movie and be more sympathetic towards Ivan's plight, you know, rather than being the villain. And that's how his character was in Catherine Applegate's book. And I think the, a, a large part of, of this conversation is the fact that Ivan chose to connect with people. Yep. He made that decision. He, he made an effort to entertain people. He made an effort to scare them because that's his connection. And he worked hard at that. And virtually everybody I've ever, ever, ever spoken to that knew Ivan or encountered him left with a very favorable opinion of who he was. That's why he's become so relatable to so many people. He made a, a connection and he went out of his way to do so. And that's so unique in a quote unquote wild animal, if you will. Um, they just don't do that. You don't look at, a, at an animal mentioned earlier, that you don't look him in the eye, that's a threat. To him, that was his connection. Hey, let me see. Who are you? That's how he engaged with you. And, and he was just so unique in so many ways. And I just know that he, he loved to engage people. Ivan just relished making connection. Well, you can learn more about the Ivan Foundation where? At IvanTheGorilla.org. Well, thank you, Larry and Earl, for sharing your story of Ivan with us. Thank you for thank the you. time. Join us next time as we launch from the highest peaks of the North Cascade Mountains with backcountry ski historian Lowell Skoog. Lowell is the author of Written in the Snows Across Time on Skis in the Pacific Northwest, recently published by Mountaineers Books and the 2023 recipient of the National Outdoor Book Award for Historical Writing. And he's also the ski mountaineering historian of the Washington State Ski and Snowboard Museum. Please join us. You won't want to miss it. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering and sound design by Daniel Gunther, with photography by Travis Lawton, administrative support from Mary Monsoor, and theme music written by Tomo Nakayama and performed by Grand Hallway, with additional music written by Andrew Weathers, as well as by Ryan Love and performed by Fox Hunt. We record on Coast Salish land at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. I'm Edward Krigsman and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to share your stories. 